This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Uh, here in Melbourne, the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival is kicking off this Wednesday and running until the 5th of April. And the other day I spoke with one of the festival ambassadors, the actor David Wenham, about his involvement in the festival and his top picks of what to check out. So we'll hear my interview in just a moment. Uh, yesterday was the start of the Australian International Documentary Conference. Um, the conference is, is a celebration of non-fiction content and it's focused uh, on supporting and elevating documentary and factual storytelling across all forms. It's happening both online and in person at ACME and will be running until Wednesday. Uh, and later tonight, I'll be joined by Margie Ratcliffe, who is an independent producer and director of documentary films. Ratcliffe was a participant in the true crime Netflix series, The Staircase, which was adapted into a drama series on Binge, um, and which documented her father's legal battle after she was accused and convicted um, after he was accused and convicted of the murder of her mother. Uh, Ratliff also features in Subject, which is a documentary that details the life-altering experience of one, sharing one's life on screen. Um, and Ratcliffe will be speaking at an upcoming panel discussion at the AIDC called The Documentary Participant at What Cost? So for more information about the panel and the conference more generally, you can head to AIDC.com. Anyway, it's now time for my interview with David Wenham about the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival. Uh, Wenham is probably best known internationally as Faramir from the Lord of the Rings trilogy or perhaps the role of Friar Carl from the Van Helsing franchise or Dilios from 300. He also starred in Moulin Rouge, uh, Dark City, Top of the Lake, uh, the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and many, many others. Um, however, for local audiences, Wenham will likely always be the menacing Brett Sprague from Rowan Wood's The Boys, or maybe the charming Diver Dan from Sea Change. I'm Laura, Miranda Rupert, this is... Diver Dan. Can we just call you Dan? Uh, no, you can call me Diver if you like. What's a scratching noise? Oh, mud crab's got five beauties in the bucket. Can they get away? They wouldn't break suddenly. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford. Alliance Francaise French Film Festival 2023, which showcases the very best of contemporary French cinema, is set to arrive in Melbourne from the 8th of March and is going to be running here until the 5th of April. I'm now joined by one of the festival ambassadors of the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival for 2023, David Wenham. Welcome to Primal Screen, David. Good to be with you, Flick. It is going to take uh, all of my energy not to call you Weno. Oh, no, you can call me Weno. <laughs> yeah. There's a fantastic moment in Thomas M. Wright's Acute Misfortune in which um, Tenchel, as artist Adam Cullen, uh, is watching your performance in The Boys and, and chants Weno rather menacingly. This is perhaps a, a very knowing inclusion by Wright. You were, of course, the subject of Adam Cullen's Archibald Prize-winning portrait in 2000. Cullen said of you at the time, in my opinion, he is the best actor of his generation. 
What particularly resonates with me is the way he's able to project a powerful intensity in an extremely economical way. I think what a lot of great Australian actors have in common is the capacity to communicate emotion without any superfluous action or expression. You have played so many different roles across the TV screen, film, theatre and even video games as a narrator. What is the secret to that economical delivery of intensity? Hats off to Adam. That's a really beautiful tribute. Thank you, Adam, up there. Um, look, I think at, at its basic core, the secret to, you know, good acting, um, if you want to call it that, doesn't sound, you know, dreadful term, is a really simple sort of formula that I was... Um, I got a little bit of advice from a wonderful Australian actor years ago called John Hargraves, who I loved growing up as a kid. Really amazing presence on screen, um, and incredible performances he, he delivered. And a fellow cast member on that job that I was on asked John uh, if he had any acting tips. And he said, the best acting advice I ever got was very simply, listen, listen real, think, think real. If you do those two things to the best of your ability, everything else takes care of itself. And it seems, a, a, you know, a relatively simple thing to do, but it's actually profoundly difficult. Um, I would I would surmise that I'd say at least 90% of actors actually don't do that. They've pre-prepared a performance so that it's not instinctive, it's not organic, it's not based in the moment. So if you do those two things truthfully and honestly, the character uh, and therefore the performance should sort of just fall into place effortlessly. Mm. That That's the theory. <laughs> Well, I think you definitely do put it into into practice. I was thinking about your character, um, the character of, of Brett Sprague in Rowan Wood's 1998 film The Boys, which I mentioned before. It's got to be one of the most iconic performances in Australian cinema history. And I heard you mention in an interview that Tony Collette, who plays Michelle, was so unnerved by your performance that she didn't want to look into your eyes. What sort of impact does playing a role like that, which we should mention is based on a true story, have on you? Oh, um, it, it did have a... At the time, I was obviously much younger and um, I used to stay in character a lot more than I do these days. As you get older, you find, you know, ways to be much more economical in the way you actually approach um, the way you go about your work. So back in those days, I would spend a lot of time psyching myself into character and in doing so it would take much longer to come out of character. And so at the time, it was based on a play that I did. Um, and then I think five years later, we did the movie. So that character stayed with me a long time. Uh, and the, the, there's parts of that character that I, I didn't really feel comfortable with, but I knew that it was, you know, it was still in my skin. Uh, I'm pleased to say that, yeah, there's no more Brett Sprague with me anymore. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever... Um, delve that deeply psychologically into a character again, I don't think, if the character is that dark. You're dangerous territory. And it's interesting, I heard you say that, you know, with the boys, there's this sense of, it often gets described as one of the most violent films, but very little on-screen violence in the film. You know, I, I suppose compared to some of the other iconic Australian films around that time where they did have a feature a tremendous amount of on-screen violence it kind of stands on its own really in that respect um it's it's the implied mm. um it's the implied violence it's the potential of what could happen as you say there's only one scene that depicts any form of violence at all and that's 
uh, my character and Tony Collect's character in a in a laundry when he you know grabs her by the hair and then pushes her head in the wall. Other than that, there is no physical violence. But it is, yeah, people find the film terrifying. They know the potential of what these characters are capable of. Yes. Last year, you hosted a discussion at the Sydney Opera House with the actor Brian Cox, who has uh, far too many actor credits for me to name, but many listeners will know him as uh, Logan Roy from Succession. Your discussion touched upon several really great performances in cinema and the particular things that made those performances so memorable. Listening, it was clear that you both share a deep love of cinema and the artistry of acting. What advice would you give to actors starting out in the industry? You mentioned before that idea of listening real. Listen real, think real. So receive the information, listen to it, and then um, think about it before you open your mouth. So it can happen exactly at the same moment, of course, but make sure you do actually process the information that's coming your way. Don't be on automatic pilot with a response. Mm. As for young actors, um, create your own work, essentially. Don't, don't just wait around for something to happen, for the phone to ring, because it may not ring. So it's, it's easy these days. We all have, you know, little, little devices that can, that can, make, that can make films. Um, yeah, get, get together with like-minded people, make, make things. Be prepared to fail, you know, go out and just try try things. The place that I went to when I was a kid, actually, is a little drama school that I was there for a little bit of time. And I remember on, on one of the walls was painted in huge letters, if you're not prepared to make a fool of yourself, you don't belong here. I myself a lot many times. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the wonderful things of um, revisiting your career was looking back into such different roles that you've played. And and a lot of it is smaller roles that you've really made your own. I was thinking of your role as Audrey in Moulin Rouge. Um, And, of course, you return in Baz Luhrmann's uh, Elvis, uh, which came out last year. And, and, you know, Diver Dan from Sea Change, we can't forget that. There's so much variety in your work. How do you find those shifts between these different roles? Because some of them seemed back-to-back. That was, for me, initially when I was a kid, that was the appeal of acting. Um, to try and inhabit characters that were for, as far away as possible from who I, I am. Uh, that, to me, is the joy in my creative process, uh, to put myself into, an, you know, into another being. Um, yeah, I was, from a young age, I would be, I'd describe myself probably as a character actor. That's the sort of stuff I love doing. However, my career took a very bizarre left-hand turn early on, and I ended up playing characters that would be regarded as much straighter uh, as opposed to character actors. So to get the opportunity again now to um, play, even if they're small characters, as you mentioned, they give me so much joy um, because I, I can let my imagination run rampant. You've talked a little bit about how you were at the start of your career. I couldn't help but think I'm one of six kids and you're, you're one of eight. Seven. Uh, seven, one of seven, sorry. Yeah. What impact do you think being the youngest of seven has had on you? Are you the youngest as well? I'm the second youngest. Look, I think the youngest, um, you know, broad brushstroke, you know, attempt to answer this question <laughs> probably because, you know, we're, you, you have to fight for attention. Yeah. Um, there, you know, so many other voices in the household. It's in, when I was in a, a, a production of Hamlet many years ago with an amazing cast, um, uh, Jeffrey Rush was in it, Richard Roxburgh, Jackie McKenzie, Kate Blanchett took over as Ophelia, uh, Max Cullen, blah, blah, blah. And there was one of the actors in it, um, his wife, Stephen Weidler, his wife was doing a paper at the time at university about actors and where they fell in the family. 
And her thesis on it essentially was a huge proportion of actors are last in the family and in Australia come from a Catholic upbringing, oh, wow. which is obviously very theatrical in terms of going to church and whatever. <laughs> we did a straw poll of our, of our uh, cast of Hamlet. We were over 50%. Wow. Last in the family, Catholic upbringing. Bizarre. That is very bizarre. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm also from a from a Catholic upbringing. I mean, when you have six six or seven kids, I think that's usually a bit of a flag that <laughs> you <laughs> might be from a Catholic family. No, but yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, you are one of the ambassadors of the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival, which kicks off later this week. This is your second time as ambassador, is that right? Mm-hmm. You've said of your involvement of the festival that French cinema has been a major influence on how the rest of the world approaches making films and telling stories in a continuing journey to understand who we are and what we do. What are some of the French films that have had the biggest impact on you, either in a, a creative or a personal sense? Well, uh, starting from when I was younger, I was really fortunate that my father—he—he didn't—he no, he didn't have any any great interest in in cultural or art really when he was growing up. He did, wasn't exposed to it. Uh, however, for whatever reason, when I was in from about the age of ten, I, I think he would take me to the cinema, and we never went to see major blockbusters. He would take me to the cinema, and we would see foreign films. Um, so I can remember seeing like Italian film Tree of Wooden Clogs. The, the films that made a huge impact on me back then in terms of uh, French cinema was my exposure to Jacques Tati's films and the character of, you know, Monsieur Hulot. It was just like, it opened my eyes. It was like, it was landing on another planet when I, I saw that world. Um, and then later on, was it a little bit older, I went to, to college, to acting school, and discovered French New Wave cinema. That blew my mind. And subsequently, new wave cinema, you know, Australian new wave cinema of the 70s, American cinema of the 70s, they are my favourite. It's my favourite period of time for cinema. And take because why? Because um, auteurs, uh, writers, directors were fully empowered to create the pieces of work, the pieces of art that they wanted to make. There was no restrictions. They could be free in the way that they approached their filmmaking. And that obviously shows in French cinema at the time as well. They, you know, the camera was liberated. It was off the tripod or the tripod or the dolly. And it was it was free. It could travel anywhere. There was an energy, there was a vibrancy about it. And to see those films, um, and I, I returned to them. They're the films. I return to um, like 400 blows. I return to obviously, you know, Jules and Jim, um, Au Revoir Les Enfants, heaps of films I return to that continue to inspire me. Here in Australia, over the last decade or so, there's been a significant cut in, in arts funding, and we're seeing maybe some of that money coming back. But it has had a huge impact, and of course, the pandemic. Do you think there's a way for us to continue to make really quality cinema and TV shows without that support? I can only compare um, the, the, the support we have here in Australia to the support for the French film industry. The French film industry makes more than 250 films a year. Um, and the culture, and that's what I love about French cinema and French culture, it is respected, it's loved, and it's supported by that country. It is seen as is as important part of their life as any anything else. It is 
it's essential to their life. Um, we're still learning about that here in Australia. We don't appreciate how important culture is to us. Um, when we do, hopefully that'll, you know, in increase the, uh, the government's funding. But French cinema, I love their... Um, they have a, a little premium on the ticket price when you go to the cinema. A percentage of every ticket price goes back into the French uh, film industry. Wow. What an amazing thing to do. And so you simple, know? such a simple change that could be made. Completely. And it's not, it's not controversial. Everybody in France loves it. Yeah. Because they, they, they feel as though they're contributing to their society and helping the arts and it comes back. They make, you know, they get to more than 250 films a year by such a simple thing. David, for the Alliance Française French Film Festival, there's lots of Australian premieres. It's a fantastic program. Do you have any particular films that you're super excited to have on the big screen? I do. I've got to say, in front of me here, I did, did the form guide. I went through every film. <laughs> I looked at trailers. I looked at things. where, And I've written, I don't know how many films of, you know, must-see Interestingly, without even thinking about it, the majority of them are actually comedies. Yeah. Maybe that's something about what we we want to gravitate towards uh, to at the moment. But I certainly do. You know, there's heaps. I, I can fire some off for you yeah, straight away. It. There's a film called Final Cut, um, a, a zombie comedy that reminded me of the early films of Peter Jackson, which I was completely obsessed about. Films like Bad Taste and Brain Dead, ridiculous <laughs> splatter comedy films. Final Cut seems absolutely ridiculous. That's a must. Um, let's, let's, let's go down through. Um, a film, here we go, the, um, the selling point is Indiana Jones meets Monty Python. Well, that's a must-do. That's uh, Jack <laughs> Mamoon and the Secrets of, uh, of Val Verde. Um, a documentary, Notre Dame on Fire, which is, you know, self-explanatory there. Uh, I think that will be pretty incredible. Let's have a look here. Um, oh, my goodness. I love, I love films with children as protagonists. I mentioned 400 Blows before. There's one here that one uh, uh, picked up in a certain regard in the French Film Festival called Playground, and it has two kids as the protagonists. Um, there's a film that goes for 74 minutes. That's a great selling point for people <laughs> who've only got 74 minutes. Um, incredible but, but true. Another comedy. New York Times says it's a sweetly observed time travel comedy. And then there's one down here. Where is it? I've got heaps of pages here, Flick. There's, there's, okay, I'll mention two more. I've got many more. But Driving Madeline is a two-hander between a, a, a cab driver and a passenger. The passenger is Lynn Renault. She is a 94-year-old acting legend. It's like, I want to go and see that. How good that a 94-year-old um, actress is given the opportunity to, to star in a film. Absolutely. And then maybe, uh, and last one, uh, it's not a, a, a comedy, but uh, it won uh, the top prize of the Venice Film Festival, Brother and Sister. And it has two actresses that I've worked with, Marion Cotillard and Goldshifter Farhan. Amazing. So, yeah, I'll be able to see that because they're both incredible performers. I love that we've seen a real shift in, in how we're seeing cinema. You know, a lot of the times the big awards go to the dramas or the very serious films. But festivals have really changed in the yeah. last few years where they're thinking more about what's going to be entertaining and what's going to be a really fun thing and to watch with a group of friends. Yeah, I've been banging on about that for I don't know how many years. I don't think comedies get the respect that they deserve. Look at, you know, whatever award ceremonies around the world. You never see a comedy up there for best film. You never see it, hardly ever see it, you know, best actor or best actress uh, performance for a comedy. 
And I would submit that it's probably far, for me, far more difficult to pull off a great comic performance than it is a drama. Drama is much easier um, to, to make than a, a really good comedy and they don't get the credit they deserve. I 100% agree and I, I'm not surprised that most of the films on your list were comedies. You are, after all, responsible for Getting Square, yes. which is one of my favourites. I did actually revisit oh. that and it, and it holds up. Oh, very good. Well, I can, <laughs> here we go. I might, might be able to drop a, um, a bit of a... Well, I'll give you, give you the first-hand news here. 20 years later, we're coming back. What? Yeah, we're, we're we're going to make it. We're making a sequel. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, and That's it's very it's exciting. pretty it's pretty amazing actually. I'm very excited. Uh, yeah, about I'm it. over the moon. We've been yeah. talking about it for a long, long time, and the, yeah, all the all the pieces have come together, and we're getting the uh, we're getting the band back together, and yeah. Oh, that is that is music to my ears. I'm very happy to hear that, David. Um, oh, good, good. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. See you at the cinema. Yeah, the Alliance Francaise. French Film Festival. Definitely. Starting here in Melbourne on the 8th of March and will be running until the 5th of April. For the full program and to buy your tickets, you can head to afmelbourne.com.au. You are indeed listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. That was David Wenham, who is one of the festival ambassadors for the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival, which kicks off this Wednesday and will be running until the 5th of April at various cinemas, including the Astar, Palace Cinemas, the Kino and Pentridge Cinema. Uh, for, so for the full festival program and to buy your tickets, you can head to afmelbourne.com.au. And if you missed my chat with David Wenham, you can always listen back on the Triple R website or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Um, while I've got you, you should, uh, and while you're on uh, the Triple R website, uh, this is a special uh, competition for Triple R subscribers. We have a double pass to MTC's Bernhardt Hamlet. Um, which is happening on Monday the 6th of March uh, at uh, 6.30 at Southbank. Um, that might be a slightly old one. Um, it must be sooner than that. Oh, here we go. The season is running actually from the 4th of March to the 15th of April at Southbank Theatre. Um, it features um, the, 12, the star of The Twelve and Hunters, Kate Mulvaney. Bernhardt Hamlet tells the story of a trailblazing 20th century woman who wrote the book on fame. Uh, it is a whip-smart play about the legendary French actress Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, and if you're a Triple R subscriber and you'd like to head along, visit the Triple R website at rrr.org.au to enter the competition. We've got a few double passes to give away to the performance, um, so make sure you get on there. So here in Melbourne, we are on day two of the Australian International Documentary Conference, which is happening online and also in person at ACME. And one of the panel discussions uh, for this conference considers trends in documentaries over the last few decades and most importantly, the impact of the commercial success on their subjects. As it is titled The Documentary Participant at What Cost and is happening this Wednesday, Margie Ratcliffe is an independent producer and director of documentary films and one of the panellists for this discussion. Welcome to Primal Screen, Margie. Hi, thank you so much. So your family was the subject of a TV series directed by French documentarian Jean-Xavier de Lestrade, which originally aired in, uh, the docuseries originally aired in 2004 as an eight-episode uh, miniseries. 
and it documented uh, your father's legal battle after he was accused and convicted of the murder of your mother. In 2018, uh, Netflix released the original series onto the platform and added two uh, sequels from the director as well as three additional follow-ups. Um, and last year, Binge released uh, a drama miniseries which is was based on the original 2004 true crime docuseries of the same name. Um, the Staircase starred Colin Firth as your father, Michael Peterson, um, Tony Collette as your mother and Sophie Turner was playing you. How did you first learn that there would be a drama series being made and what were your first thoughts about hearing about it? Um, yes. So, I mean, this has been a long process for sure. And I, I actually um, had spoken with the creator of the, H or of the, the docuseries and he said, well, I, I had met him many years ago when he was interested in making a um, a fictional film about what the documentary filmmakers lives were like during the trial um, and so I really for years thought that that was going to be the angle and that m my sister and I wouldn't even really even be a part of it so it wasn't until oh maybe a, a few years ago where I got the call and and they said oh yeah you know we just actually secured uh Colin Firth for your dad and I said wait 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 a second <laughs> not yeah I imagine it was a bit of a shock as well when um <laughs> you hear that Sophie Turner is playing you and I understand that she reached out to you to to um see whether she could connect and and sort of talk more about the role is that right yes yeah, so I got an email from the director uh and he said that you know uh, so Sophie Turner had been cast as the role of me, which is so strange <laughs> in itself. And um, that's my opinion, not his opinion, clearly. <laughs> and um, and so he he said, yeah, she she wants to talk with you about the role, uh, get your insights in all of the things that happened during the trial, and uh, talk to you about your mom, and. And it did not sit right with me. I I just cut off communication with him after that. It was really really uncomfortable. And I said, "This is not for. This is not what I signed up for. This I never signed up for anything. But this is not what I signed up for. I'm not interested in it." Was there any acknowledgement that this would be a traumatic memory for you? You were very young at the time of the, of the court case and everything that happened, and even the documentary series. Was Was there any acknowledgement of that? No, no, there was no acknowledgement that possibly talking with Sophie Turner about really traumatic things that happened um, would would maybe upset me. No, there no acknowledgement whatsoever. <laughs> mm. It's interesting because we actually reviewed um, we reviewed the series on on the show when it came out last year, and it was one of those reviews where we we had only watched a few episodes, and I think we we felt quite positive about it, and then. When I finished the the series, I actually had changed my opinion on it. I, I didn't actually enjoy it very much. I found it um, a lot of the violence on screen quite gratuitous, and I didn't know that it was necessary to see that on screen. Um, so I can't. I can only imagine what it'd be like as someone directly um, affected by this real life story. Um, 
So last year, Camilla Hall and Jennifer Tiaxera's film Subject was released. Um, it is a documentary that details how a subject's life is altered by sharing their story on screen. You are one of the participants and you're interviewed about your experience in The Staircase and the later iterations of your family's story that have happened on Netflix and Binge, like I said. You're also the co-producer of this film. So how did your involvement with the film come about as both producer and a participating subject? So um, all of us key participants are co-producers because we really fulfilled the role of a co-producer, you know, during production and post and like taking the film out towards distribution. Um, but specifically my role was kind of at the, the the heart or the beginning of the film. So I met with Camilla Hall um, to just talk about other projects. And she told me about subject and this idea that she had had, it was just a kernel and I said, oh, well, maybe I can consult on that because in five days, Netflix is going to release all the episodes and two new ones. And so that kind of like blew our conversation out of the water. And from there, we brought Jen um, in to co-direct and, and started to talk with other participants. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's very interesting. I was I was quite surprised that your your dad, Michael Peterson, also features in Subject. And in one scene, we see you attend a studio recording of your dad's televised interview with with Dr. Phil. Um, the documentary is all about the the impact, uh, both positive and negative, that a documentary can have on a subject. It seems your father and you have very different perspectives um, or viewpoints on this matter. Is this something that you discussed in in with him directly when making subject? No, actually, I really wanted to have um, my dad speak freely about his own experiences. I mean, I was personally a little curious as to what his experiences with the staircase were. So that was one of the interviews where I kind of stayed away. I didn't go and interview, you know, um, do the interview with him and really didn't ask a lot of questions about the interviews. It wasn't until he said yes to the Dr. Phil show where I started to butt in and go, okay, dad, what's going on here? Why are you doing this to us? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's an interesting decision. I was I didn't know about the Dr. Phil interview at all until watching Subject. And I was really surprised because it seemed, I understand that your dad has a book called um, Behind the Staircase. That sort of seems like a more obvious choice. He is a writer after all. But I was just, I didn't know about this and I, I just thought it was an odd pairing. Um, there has been accounts before of, of Dr. Phil being called into question about perhaps being a bit exploitative with some of his subjects. So I just thought it was an interesting inclusion in the subject, in subject, the documentary as well. Um, and we should mention that Staircase, The Staircase, is not the only uh, documentary that Subject, the documentary, considers. Um, there's also interviews with participants from documentaries like Hoop Dreams, uh, The Wolf Pack, Capturing the Freedmans and The Square. Um, while some of the subjects talk about the experience of being a documentary subject, um, like the, the uh, in a positive light, like the um, the young boys in Hoop Dreams, they receive a cut of the profits once the film uh, becomes tremendously su successful. Uh, and Jesse Friedman from Capturing the Freedmans um, obviously had his case reviewed as a consequence of the film. But there is 
a long uh, a long history of documentary cinema being weaponized as a tool of colonization and you, you know subject touches upon this but Nanook of the North is a prime example documentary subjects are often not paid uh, for their time uh, and obviously subject is a, is a, a a special um, exclusion to that. Um, and there's the idea that you know, uh, they're not paid because they want to make the story authentic. Um, but this can also have – can lead to this tremendous exploitation and misrepresentation of someone's story. How do you think that we can decolonise documentary practice? And do you think it's even possible for the subject to be empowered outside of them stepping behind the camera themselves? Yes, I mean, it's definitely not one size fits all. So for subject, um, we actually have points on the back end, meaning that if the film, it's kind of like Hoop Dreams, if the film makes money, we will be um, paid similar to the filmmakers. Um, but that's a big if, right? <laughs> you never know. And I think that's a good tool for um, documentary, independent documentary filmmakers who don't have a ton of funding behind um, behind them. But it, it really is about what is going to cause the, the best amount of care for your participants within your specific project. So it can be paying them for arch archival photos, things like that, really donating to their community. Um, there are all sorts of ways to really figure out what's going to do the, the best um, for your participants. Yeah, and the subject doesn't actually clarify, you know, there's some ideas that are raised through these discussions and things like that. But it's interesting hearing just practical things you can put into you can put practical things you can just do while you're either creating, reaching out to your subjects, or in the in the very instance of the filming and and what happens afterwards, and perhaps even after the fact, even if you've worked on a documentary um, that got released several years ago, what you could do and still reach out to the subjects to change that the nature of that. Um, I'm really interested. You know, you were so young when you had this documentary crew come into your house. And of course, over the years, you know, with everything that's happened with the court case and, and your father and, and, you know, not to mention the, the loss of your mother, you know, I would think that all of that would have had, an, you know, entangled these really quite intense emotions and, and traumatic memories with the filmmaking process in a negative way. But the fact that you are working currently in the film industry is a really curious setup. Can you explain what first drew you into working in film? Yes, and I think there are some other participants, you know, that are interested in film or, you know, Ahmed from The Square was a cinematographer before all of this happened as well. And uh, Mukunda works in, in television. Uh, for me, I was already um, applying to film schools and doing film studies at the time when The Staircase happened. So I wanted to do fiction, but then spending so much time with the filmmakers and then even after the original Staircase, I would spend um, time with the editors who were my friends. I really just fell in love with documentary and the power that it had. But I knew I didn't want to want to do true crime or something awful. So I kind of moved into like the nature documentaries, into the into the Save the Earth documentaries. That's more what I'm interested in. Yes, yes. I can understand why you wouldn't want to go near true crime. I'm personally not a big fan of true crime. And it, <laughs> and it is interesting that the way in which uh, – the pervasiveness of, of media, you know, streaming services and things like that, and even the billboards. Uh, there's a moment in which you're you're looking up at a billboard for the staircase, 
they invade our, our presence. So it's really hard to avoid it, particularly in today's era. So um, it's a fascinating uh, study, this film. This, and I, I do ha- I recommend that people check it out. It's called Subject. Uh, it did come out last year. But it will be um, – you will be – um, attending the Australian uh, International Documentary Conference as part of this panel, um, and you'll work. You'll, it's alongside some other panelists. You, you'll actually be joined as well by um, Jennifer Tiexera, the one of the directors, um, as well as Maya Newell and um, Tariki Onus, and that will be moderated by Alex Kelly. Um, Margie, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. We're looking forward to the conference talk. <laughs> Yes, the Australian International Documentary Conference is happening happening now both online and uh, in person at ACME this Wednesday. And if you'd like to attend the panel discussion, it is happening at 12pm on Wednesday. Uh, just prior, I spoke with Margie Ratliff. Uh, she is going to be joining a panel discussion that is happening as part of the Australian International Documentary Conference that is on until Wednesday. And if you missed any of tonight's interviews, um, especially that one, you can listen back via the uh, Primal Screen podcast or via the Triple R website. And while you're on the website, um, it is worth putting in a uh, request, if you're a Triple R subscriber, for the Castlemaine State Festival, which is happening from Friday, the March 24, until Sunday, April 9, on Jara Country. Um, as part of the festival, Gravity and Other Myths are performing uh, a simple space at Western Reserve Big Top. So seven acrobats, acrobats will push their physical limits without reserve. Their performance is simultaneously raw, frantic and delicate. Um, supported by driving live percussion and presented so intimately that you can feel the heat, hear every breath and be immersed in every moment. We do have a double pass to a simple space, gravity and other myths, which is happening on Saturday the 25th or Sunday the 26th of March at the Western Reserve Big Top at Castlemaine State Festival. Um, For tickets and more info, you can head to castlemainefestival.com.au and if you are in a triple R subscriber, you can uh, enter the competition. So just head to rrr.org.au. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 